The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the latest Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss this week's business headlines, hear more inspirational success stories, and get brilliant advice from the board you can't afford. We're also joined this morning by special guests, entrepreneur Chris van der Kyle and Glasgow's Chamber of Commerce Chief Exec Stuart Patrick. And of course, our business gurus Tom and Willie are here to provide support for local business. So if you want advice or have a question for our dynamic duo, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Gentlemen, lots of interesting topics this week, but one issue has been fueling fear, so to speak, as well as a lot of headlines, petrol shortages, panic at the pumps, lengthy queues, limits on spend. How much is it simply scaremongering and how much is this a real crisis, Tom? So let me start being controversial this morning and let me say it's the press's fault. <laughs> totally agree. I knew you what were going to say What do you think, Willie? Totally yeah. agree. It's Donald's fault. Totally agree. Totally um, agree. Oh, my goodness. So, I think the Herald were the first to break it. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it first in the Herald. My goodness. So... Was there a fuel shortage? No. Did panic buying start? Yes. And it's one of these things, if if you speak to someone, oh, could you get fuel? Oh, I can I get, oh my goodness. And then it, it snowballs. So how do these things start? I'm not sure. But the press certainly, you know, I love the Daily Mail who put up the headline and then they, they love getting a video up two people scrapping in the forecourt. <laughs> they just love it, Darrell. One with a knife. <laughs> I think the media just was reporting. Uh, oh, on, here comes the line, Willie. On leaks, should we say, about discussions about potential fuel uh, leaks? Fuel, well, fuel leaks. <laughs> That's a headline. Potential stories, but at that stage, you're right. There was only a few forecourts closed. Yeah, so I think it's been a panic about nothing, Willie. But people did sit in queues. It shows you how how fragile the supply chain is, Willie. You know, they only keep so much stock and if if there is a big surge, then it mucks up the whole supply chain. Yeah, when you get a story like this and the genie's at the bottle, it's kind of hard to get it back in and people, it's hard to convince people thereafter that there is no shortage. But it's certainly, I think there was a, there's a few parts to this story and how, how it kind of, you know, got arms and legs and ran. Obviously, it was started in, in, in the newspapers, then broke on TV. But then I think... I think that the whole college, you know, the, the, the whole association used that a bit to highlight the problems. And I think what was really interesting was that when the government decided that they were going to allow the visas for the Polish HGV drivers to come back, that he says, that'll be right, we're not coming back. <laughs> so I don't know how anybody would leave Poland to come to the UK on a three-month visa, right? So I think that it's just another, we've been talking about it for a few weeks now, it is a sector where... We should look at it, you know, we're training again. There's opportunities here. You know, let's get people trained up to be HGV drivers. Um, and, you know, it's, while we're talking about drivers, it's really interesting that I, I seen yesterday that, you know, we were going to use the army to drive the ambulances. <laughs> right? And that there's some law that they're not allowed to drive with the blue light on. The blues and twos, they're not allowed to drive when they're <laughs> there on. So, I mean, I mean, I do, I do think sometimes who makes up these rules yeah uh, yeah. When, when when someone comes out with a good idea I think it's 
time that people started looking for it from start to finish to see how that's going to work out because that certainly looked embarrassing yesterday when I read that. There's a couple of people that I admire who um, will voice their opinion. One is Simon Wolfson who runs Next and um, Willie's been saying this for a while to get the Wilson family on as, as great Scots, which I'm sure someday in the show... It's must, in the pipeline. Must, must Sir Isaac is in the pipeline. Great. So, so Simon must be his great, great, great grandson or something. <laughs> but anyway, he runs next. He has a lord as well. He's, he's the same as Willie. And um, he, he said about it, he said, I'm not sure why um, we are so unprepared for this because the driver shortages and etc have been known for some time and why did we not put in plans to solve it? It seems to be the crisis comes and there's a knee jerk to try and fix it. Now remember he, he is usually a government, a UK government supporter so when he says something like that I tend to listen. So we've known about this we have not dealt with it properly and now we're trying to catch up. And Willie's right, a visa for a Polish driver or a Dutch driver, and I actually heard one of them been interviewed and they said, we're not coming. Why would we come to Britain a three-month visa? Pardon the pun, but I think we can sum up by saying we were definitely asleep at the wheel. <laughs> yeah, one, one of the factors leading to the shortage is, is the dispute at the DVLA. You know, we're looking to have 5,000 temporary visas there's a hold up there with about 57,000 applications at the DVLA that's been going on for seven months. And yet, well, in the media, we've not reported on that until now. It's suddenly well, surfaced. Yeah. Well, I watched Andrew Malcolm, who I think would be an expert. You he, know, he would um, know what he's talking the about. Malcolm family have been, you know, in logistics for many, many years, one of the top companies. And I've seen Andrew on the TV twice, I think, in the last couple of weeks, saying this, what we're trying to do here is not the answer. You know, we we need you know we need deeper thinking. We need to come up with a robust plan that's actually going to solve this, rather than this sticking plaster. And unfortunately, that's what we most that's what we get most of the time is a kind of sticking plaster remedy to to something that needs a nice bandage. Well, he's hit it in the head there. Why did nobody speak to Andrew Malcolm, who knows what he's talking about, three, four, six months ago, and said, "Right, can you see what's going to happen here?" Because I'm sure Mal um, Andrew could. And what, what do you think? So listen to people who know what they're talking about. Don't write policy in isolation. One of the people that has maybe the answers is Nicola Sturgeon, Willie. She's calling for the UK government to urgently revisit their entire post-Brexit immigration policy in the context of labour shortages. So is she getting this right? Well, I would say definitely we have to look at all the rules in relation to Brexit. So uh, I think all of Brexit should be revisited and think maybe even another vote would be a good idea. <laughs> uh, I certainly court. didn't. You've I, heard it first in yeah, the core radio business yeah, I show. certainly did not vote for Brexit, you know, the, um, and I think that uh, on this occasion she's absolutely right. But I, there's a lot more I would like to expand if we're, having a, if we're opening up that briefcase again to look at everything that we that came out of Brexit. There's a few more things I'd like to look at as well. Tom? Well, I I actually agree with Willie and Nicola on this occasion. This must this be a first real. for the Go Radio Business Show. I am all for positive immigration and I think it is one of the things that should be devolved to Scotland because Scotland has a different demographics to the rest of the UK and we need people. You know, our birth rate has not been as good 
or not been as been as high as the rest of the UK. So so we have got a different demographic um, population to the rest of the UK. But that must not hide that we need to get our training better. We need to get training people into work better, get people ready for the jobs that are there because there are jobs there for the Scots who don't have a job just now, Donald. Really? Donald, I'm really worried now with me and Tom agreeing with the First Minister. I oh hope Jane Godley goodness. doesn't start parodying me and him. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, get that door. <laughs> well, I get the door. <laughs> well, she's clearly listened to you, but others are listening as the UK Business Secretary. Uh, probably tuned into last week's show, Tom. He's poised to approve funding for a fleet of mini nuclear reactors to solve the energy crisis. And that was the very thing you were talking about. Tom yeah. Hunter, a new advisor to the government. <laughs> That'll be our first one. Um, well, I'm sure it's been the planning a long time. To, and I'm, well, I am, I'm sure he's a listener to the, to the show, like many. We've got a growing band of listeners now. Um, but... Yes, he said that, but then something I disagree with our First Minister on, let's go back to disagreeing. Back to normal. Is, um, she said not on Scottish soil. Um, I think it's wrong. I think it's short-sighted. I think it's politics. I think the the Green Lobby, um, there are many good things, but on this, they are plain wrong. Plain wrong then? Willie? Whether they like it or not, they're going to have to put up with it because it has, has to be part of the solution. You know, and it's interesting. I, I came home from London on the train late on the Wednesday night and uh, I seen a big sign now that SSE are saying that all the energy that they supply now comes from renewables. So my point to the government is, and, and I'm really serious about this, if we're now saying that Scottish Power and SSE, two of our biggest providers, the older utility that they provide in Scotland now comes from renewables, why then do we don't uh, do we not just have a big tick, right? That if I use um, Scottish Power or SSE as my provider, then I don't have to have solar, then I don't have to have a heat pump, I don't have to have all of these things. And I say again, I'm not doing that. A heat pump's going to cost me 12 grand, solar's going to cost me three grand a house. I'm saying that, that I would prefer to spend that £15,000 insulating the house, which is a huge part of the uh, both government's initiatives. So please have a look at this. If we're get, if, if, if our, both our utility providers are saying that this is the case, there is the answer and let's spend that money rather than wasting it uh, on things that we don't need in relation to climate change. So Donald, I would just say, please, governments, listen to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Willie said last week he actually sells heat pumps and yep. he's saying this isn't the answer. So you can't get a more honest opinion than that. Indeed. Well, talking about of listening, there's a theme here because we've had the, the Tory government in the UK listening, Nicola Sturgeon seems to listen, and now Labour are listening because Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves is saying that when they're in government, if they get in government, they would immediately cut business rates before scrapping them entirely. And then she'll, they'll shift the burden, though, from the high street to online giants. So is this a great move? Well, Tom? well let me tell you, um, I was driving, where had I been? I'd been somewhere, and my phone went, it was Willie. And he said, are you, are you listening to the Labour Party conference? And I said, are you joking, Willie? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, the, the Shadow Chancellor just said she's going to scrap business rates and I went wow so 
Theopathetus will be delighted with this. Um, I know he's been on about it for a long time. But, you know, when I was a retailer, which is not yesterday, 100% of our revenue came from the high street. Therefore, we could pay the business rates. Now what's happening is the cake hasn't got any bigger, but it's been fragmented. So now you would, if, if I was still in retail and I still had shops, what they're saying is maybe 40%, up to 40% of your business will come from digital sales. Therefore, the shops are producing 60%, and but the rates have stayed at 100%. So, of course, somebody's got to look at this. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not playing party politics with this, but I'm, I'm glad somebody's looking at it. Really? Well, the thing that's amazed me, I've been involved in, in lobbying governments for things that I thought is right for years and years, and I can't believe it. In a few months of this show, we're getting everybody to adopt our ideas. It's amazing, really. So everybody that's spending fortunes in lobbying outside, just get involved with this show. Tell us what you want. We'll tell the government. And by the way, lo and behold, within weeks, right, they make those changes. <laughs> but I, I, being serious about it, uh, you know, Tom mentioned Theo and what he had to say. Jim McGonagall. You know, only a couple of weeks ago, Jim says, I'm sure somebody like Jim now will say, well, this would change his whole attitude now to opening up again in the high street rather than being out in business parks. So I, I have to say, I thought um, Rachel Reeves' speech was, was the best of the conference. Uh, and I think that some of the... Keir Starmer? Uh, yes, yes, I think for Ooh. impact, and I think something that will resonate with the people. I think Keir Starmer's was about the people trying to take to him. I think with Rachel, it was about policy. So once you look by... You know, the veneer of the, the of the personality I think it's all about what you're actually really going to do and I think that um, Rachel Reeves's speech as, as a shadow chancellor is probably the best I've heard coming from Labour in, in many years So Tom do you think after the Labour Party conference they look more electable? Oh goodness I, this is Willie's specialist subject this is above my pay grade um, I would just say no <laughs> I'll come from a business perspective. Well, send the face, Tom. For something that didn't see it, I think that's, 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 that's incredible. That's a wee bit biased, Tom, come on. Especially when yes, you've not seen opinion. it. Donald, especially when you've not seen it. Yeah. <laughs> but you told me about it. I think, that, well, I'll bring it back then. Corbyn, obviously, was seen as very bad for business. But this conference, Starmer and Rachel Reeves trying their best to show that they're listening. Did it come across to you as if they seem to have a better understanding now yes. of business. I mean, Corbyn and John McDonald were unelectable. Nobody's been elected from the extremes, whether it's right or left in UK politics. I, I don't know, Willie, ever. You're, you're more a student of this than me. And therefore, listening, because I did go back and listen to Rachel Reeves, and um, she made a lot of sense. Um, but I still prefer Rishi Sunak as a chancellor I think he really gets it from a business point of view and um, you know furlough's finished now I read this morning furlough helped protect 9 million jobs and cost us cost us the UK taxpayer 70 billion pounds wow what you needed to put on your superman pants when you come up with that policy well, I'm going to disagree with Tom the way that he disagrees with me. <laughs> no, there, there, there is examples of, of the extreme and Boris Johnson is that, so people have voted for the extreme. <laughs> but I, um, I would say that, yes, I thought that overall that the, the Labour Party came out in a good light this week and uh, not going to get too political, but just to answer that is... <laughs> Go on, Willie, I thought they'd done, done well. 
Well, you mentioned, uh, Tom mentioned furlough. It's the end of furlough, there's impact on business. Um, do you think that the UK government may have to change tack in the weeks and months ahead and maybe put in other measures? Do you think just cutting off completely is going to rebound on them? Um, well, I think, um, like all of these things, there needs to be an end. Um, it has been signalled for... I mean, I... I, I think it's been a, a very brave policy and I think it's actually worked, Donald. So I think um, hats off because, I mean, to come up in a short period of time with a policy um, helping protect 9 million jobs and costing 70 billion, wow, um, that is that is brave stuff. Um, and there are, there are plenty of support to get um, people back into work, I would say, but and and we hear it all all the time. Um, there are shortages out there, you know. So I think employers, it's employers' responsibility to attract the best talent. And if there's shortages, then they need to come up with different ways to attract talent. And one of it is higher pay. And some of these sectors, quite frankly, have been badly paid, and they're going to have to pay decent wage now and there's one person pays for it which is us the consumer and I'm fine with that Really? Yeah it was interesting on this week I heard that there's only 140,000 people I believe still followed in Scotland Right. Um, so I, I think that we, we have to take that leap you know and it's obviously came to an end this week um, and one of the things I'd like to see the government doing is I, I think that the money that we're saving by not paying the furlough money now, I think they really have to visit the universal credit cutback. I think that people will struggle more now than they ever done and people need that £20 more than ever and I would implore them that if they can that to, to revisit this because I think a lot of families throughout the country are, are, are going to be in dire straits. 100% agree with Willie. Um, it was good that the Tories did it and it's bad that they'll take that away. It's your hero Sunak that's taken away, Tom. Yeah, um, so if he's listening to the show, Rishi, sort it out. Sort it out. Well, last week, the pair of you were having wee wagers on inflation. <laughs> so here's a, here's a wee question for us. Let's see if you can put a figure to this because oh. there were reports of a £40 million furlough claim by a firm with no staff. <laughs> so how much... Of the seventy billion claim for furlough, do you believe has been subject to fraud? I just like to, to say, right, I just read the form wrong, right? I, mean, <laughs> I just read the form wrong. I'm happy to pay the money back. Nah, shocking, shocking. And when the dust sells, you know, I, I know it was a big thing at the Labour conference this week about you know going to go after the people who got the PPE contracts. I think that over the last two years, there's been no rules. Uh, and I think the amount of fraud that has went on, uh, uh, is, is, it, this, this inquiry could last for 10 years to get to the bottom of the amount of people. And as a perfect example, I mean, how, how easy is it for someone to get £40 million when you can't prove for one minute that you've got any employees? It's shocking. So I think, um, yeah, when the pandemic hit, um, the government had to write policy on the hoof. And therefore, the C-bills loans, Willie, as well, I think, um, I might get the numbers wrong here, but this was loans going out to firms, Donald. I think they're, they're saying there's going to be 25% fraud in that, which is going to add up to many billions. And the furlough, I don't know the number, but 
I'm sure there's fraud there as well. But here's my point. How many people did it help? So let's just say it's 25%. And of course, we need to pursue those people. There are always people who are going to abuse the system. But that means it's helped and people have been honest 75%. And I think that's the key number. But we need to pursue those who have taken it because they're taking it from our pocket, Willie. It's the UK taxpayers' money. Remember, governments don't have money. This is money they've collected from us in tax and they've given out and somebody's nicked it. Well, I know they may have set up a special task force now just to go after this, and I wonder if we have something similar in Scotland, you know, because certainly it's went on here as well. So have they got a good track record in Scotland, have well, they not? He says <laughs> ironically. Hmm? Well, I hope that we'll see people's doors getting kicked in shortly, you know, to to receive these monies because it's a scandal. Same as well. You can't do that without chasing those who got PPE contracts because they were pal of a pal in the Tory government. Barman. That's, that's ridiculous as well. Well, talking about f- frauds, or maybe not, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, oh dear. China has banned all cryptocurrency deals, so is this another blow for Bitcoin, or is it still a good investment? Because you both, you disagreed on this one. Tom... Well, I, did we disagree? I, I have never got involved with Bitcoin because I don't understand it. Um, but I, I questioned whether that was because of my age. My my kids get more comfortable with it, not as an investment thing, but they said, yeah, sure, if, if that's the way it is. But I never got involved. I don't understand it, and therefore I've stayed away from it. Really? Delighted to see that China have banned it. Um, I think it's a scam. Uh, and uh, I certainly have never um, thought for one moment about buying any. I know there'll be people out there thinking different, but for me, when uh, I think actually what will bring an end to Bitcoin actually is is the whole green issue. You know, the, the what it takes to mine the blockchain, you know, and the, the energy that it uses actually to produce it. I think that that will be the death knell for for Bitcoin or for cryptocurrency. Sorry, this week. We've seen James Bond back in the cinema. Doom, doom, doom. <laughs> Can he save the cinema industry and our retail outlets? Because we've seen a huge demand for tickets. And is this the model that we should be looking for? The, the, the experience to attract people back? Willie? I think hats off to the people behind it. You know, um, <coughs> Broccoli family, I, I think that um, they're holding on to the belief that we are not releasing this until it can be in a cinema was absolutely fantastic and it has paid huge dividends and I and I didn't know until this week that the last two Bond films are uh, number two and three in the all-time best British films made and I think this one will, will hit the other two out of the park. From from the clips I've seen, it looks really, really good. I have to say, I'm not a big Bond fan, but I, you know, I've seen a few of them. But I'm certainly, I I said that I would definitely like to go and see this one in the movies. But again, congratulations to everybody behind it who had the bottle to hold out until it could be back in the cinema and didn't stream it. Tom? Yeah, well, I mean, as an investment, um, cinema chains absolutely hit rock bottom because there was nobody in it for 18 months or so and hats off to the people who've stuck in so personally the customer will decide whether cinemas survive or not I love going to the cinema Um, GFT you can get a lovely big seat and get a glass of wine a 
a poke of crisps <laughs> and watch it on the and it is an experience, Donald. And therefore, if they produce a service, an experience which the customer's willing to pay for, then they will survive. You've got to have the product as well, and I love James Bond. Sean was the best, in my opinion. Um, but um, the customer, as ever, will decide. It will also be shown in other cinemas. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed, uh, immediately after this show, I'm off to see Bond. Oh, so, are you? Very uh, good. Very much looking forward to it. But I take your point is great that they held off yes. rather than release it You know, so that we're watching it in your telly at home. There's nothing beats the cinema experience for a blockbuster. But there's a perfect example of a business where it's wonderful to know that you have a product, right, where you cannot fail, right? The franchise is there now. You know you're always going to exceed the amount of costs in making. I don't think there's ever been a financial failure in making a Bond film. No. no. And, and one of the things that's hap happening in Scotland, um, kind of under the radar, is... Because of the growth of Amazon and Apple, Netflix, um, etc., the demand for content's going up, and there is a lot of production in Scotland now. Um, a friend of mine connects all the Wi-Fi, all the internet for these productions, and it would amaze you what's happening in Scotland right now. Some blockbusters, I'm not allowed to say which ones, but they're getting made in Scotland, which is brilliant. Well, we had Batman um, during lockdown, the streets uh, being closed for filming, and it's great, the interest, because you spend your time in the f watching the films, <laughs> trying to go, I recognise You're that. supposed to be editing the Herald, Donald. <laughs> yeah. This is in my rare bit of free time. <laughs> yeah, no, I do know because obviously my son's involved with his partner in Edinburgh, and they've been involved in some of the big blockbusters that have been made here over the last five or six years, and they are growing and growing. I believe there's all sorts of investment now. Great, They're going boy. to build a new you know, um, production facility here again in Scotland, so fantastic. And, and I, I think there's a there's a message here but to the people involved in this industry the reason why that all the big Hollywood houses are coming here to make films is because in the States it's getting so difficult for them to make you know the unions are making it difficult local authorities are making it difficult they won't close roads they won't do this so well done to all the local councils who have been accommodating and helped attract that investment this is a huge uh, inward investment in, in the country so well, yeah. well done to the, the industry that's attracted that good good point Wally yeah. so Hollywood blockbusters are getting made in Glasgow brilliant mm -hmm. love it yes Join us after the break where we have the latest in our brilliant series on Great Scots and we talk to Glasgow's Chief Executive for the Chamber of Commerce, Stuart Patrick. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey, supporting the lifeblood of the Scottish economy. Welcome back as we're now joined by the Chief Executive of Glasgow Chamber of Commerce, Stuart Patrick, for his regular monthly roundup. Welcome to the show again, Stuart. Thanks very much, Donald. Um, I know that uh, Tom was keen last month that I looked beyond COVID 
and I didn't oblige. But today I'm happy to report that Glasgow has a much better mix of good news, bad news for the beginning of October. So let's start with some good news. COP26 is now just four weeks away and while nothing is more important than the climate negotiations themselves, the fringe activities are finally taking shape in venues including the Science Centre, Glasgow City Chambers, Scottish Powers Headquarters, the universities and City of Glasgow College where our own chamber will be hosting the Climate Chamber Mission, bringing together over 100 international companies with local businesses to explore trading links with a green economy theme. Invitations are now emerging from COP sponsors, from the Chamber and from various other parties for Glasgow businesses to connect with COP. Also in the lead up to COP, Glasgow City Council launched its Green Print, offering 10 projects as opportunities for an estimated £30 billion in public and private investment, helping the city reach its 2030 net zero target, but also stimulating economic recovery. Some projects, like the uh, Glasgow Metro System or the project to retrofit over 400,000 mostly privately owned homes to be more energy efficient and to use cleaner energy sources, are complex and at relatively early feasibility study stage. Others are more advanced, including the second phase of expansion at the Scottish Events Campus, which would make it one of the most sustainable and competitive conference and exhibition centres in the world and would seem a fair reward to the SEC for being chief among the reasons COP26 came to Glasgow in the first place. In there too uh, is the technical and commercial plan to make Glasgow City Innovation District climate neutral. Not only can GSID help Glasgow be a player in industries as diverse as energy, space communications, health technologies and photonics, it can, given its location around the University of Strathclyde's campus, be a positive force for shaping a modern, relevant city centre stuffed full with academic and commercial innovation. There was especially good news for GSID last month when Los Angeles-based Strathclyde alumnus Charles Huang, uh, a key player in the development of rapid flow testing for coronavirus, donated $70 million to the university, with over half being allocated to the next phase of GSID's technology and innovation zone. Again in the city centre, Sovereign Centos made their long-term intentions known for a profound redevelopment of the St Enoch Centre, with a phased plan to replace the existing glass structure with a set of mixed-use city blocks. The View Cinema in St Enoch has already opened in what used to be the BHS space, and I am told is trading well, and plans for reusing the former Debenham site are taking shape. It's good news that one of the city centre's biggest investors is well down the road in thinking how to respond to all that has happened. I can't avoid some bad news, though. Um, if you have been relying on the job retention scheme to see you through the COVID crisis, the time is now up, and the news for those relying on office workers in the city centre remains grim, at least in the short term. Glasgow is patently not yet recovering footfall during the week, and there's no end date in sight for the First Minister's call for home working as the default. The most recent figures to the end of August show the city employers largely adhering to that position, with weekday footfall reaching only 12% of pre-pandemic levels. We still have a long recovery path to travel, and on the return to the office, we are falling further behind other UK cities. We need the Scottish Government to give us some hope on when the homeworking policy will be dropped or even modified.
And just a few words on the Chamber's activity. Um, as a COP legacy project, we've just launched My Climate Path, a programme which helps Glasgow school pupils with a passion for tackling climate change to learn what steps to take to build a career in the green economy. And we're looking for experienced business folk to explain the skills young people will need. Please look up My Climate Path on the Chamber website if you think you can help. And finally, the Glasgow Business Awards is on Thursday and we're grateful to the Royal Bank of Scotland as our headline sponsor and the Herald as our media partner. Thanks, uh, Donald. Uh, we're back as a real live face-to-face -face event and we're chuffed that we're getting the chance this year to celebrate all the success of Glasgow businesses in the past calendar year. Should be a fantastic event, Stuart. Lots of success stories um, to be recognised and businesses put in the spotlight can, can I ask, Stuart, is that obviously COP is getting nearer and nearer now, four weeks. Um, I haven't seen much publicity around SC and big expos. Now, it may be happening, you know, but I thought there'd be a wee bit more marketing about, you know, here we're grabbing this and we're going to have this exhibition and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Is things happening behind the scenes that are concentrating and letting business know that this is happening? It there is a lot of work going on behind the scenes because the programme is being pulled together at enormously short notice, uh, ridiculously short notice, really, and all that because of the negotiations around how COVID was going to be managed uh, at the conference. So um, you're, you're beginning to see uh, invitations coming out from the likes of Scottish Power and Royal Bank of Scotland for their uh, sponsorship involvement. But um, as far as the government is concerned, I do know we're certainly in discussion uh, with the Scottish government on uh, how to work together on providing a programme of activity that, where possible, allows us to introduce some of the key corporate and business players coming into the city to our members, introduce them, get a chance to meet. So that is happening <clears throat> the invitations probably another couple of weeks before you start seeing them really coming out in force a uh, uh, bit of real good news I can tell you without naming any of the companies but some of the venues that we own in town Stuart that um, I can tell the people of Glasgow anyone who is anybody is coming yeah right yes. we, we can't believe the companies that have signed up to, to hire out some of our venues the, the exact people that you'd love to become at COP26. Well, certainly challenges ahead, but there's still optimism, isn't there, Stuart? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think we can now start to look forward with a little bit more enthusiasm. Uh, COP26 gives us a, a platform to really start to do that, but and Christmas comes after that fairly quickly, so let's hope that we can be more positive for uh, the next few months. Indeed, I look forward to your next monthly briefing and we should have lots of good news around COP and then, of course, we're into Christmas and hopefully a big retail rush. Thank you for coming in again, Stuart. Thanks, Arnold. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks, Willie. Now in the latest of our brilliant series in Great Scots, we tell the story of the Bank of Scotland. Bank of Scotland was founded by an act of the Scottish Parliament on the 17th of July, 1695. It is Scotland's first and oldest bank, and postdates the Bank of England by just one year. The bank was set up primarily to develop Scotland's trade, and began business in February 1696 with a working capital of £10,000 sterling. In 1696, Bank of Scotland became the first commercial bank in Europe to successfully issue paper currency. This was an invaluable service, given the unreliability of Scots coinage at that time. The first notes were issued in dominations of 5, 10, 50 and 100 pounds, with the first pound note being introduced in 1704. 
Bank of Scotland's early years were turbulent ones. During the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, Bank of Scotland was forced to close its doors when Bonnie Prince Charlie's army occupied the city of Edinburgh. All the bank's papers and valuables were transferred to Edinburgh Castle for safekeeping, where they remained for two months until the rebel army finally departed. The early years of the 20th century brought new business to Bank of Scotland. Companies such as British Aluminium and Barr and Stroud, manufacturers of optical rangefinders for the British Navy, sought sophisticated finance on a scale previously unknown. The 1950s sparked a series of mergers and acquisitions right across the financial sector. Bank of Scotland began this phase of its development by merging with the Glasgow-based Union Bank of Scotland in 1955. Three years later, it expanded into consumer credit with the acquisition of Northwest Securities. Then in 1971, it merged with the British Linen Bank. Throughout its history, Bank of Scotland has been considered an innovator in its field. The first bank to install a computer to process accounts in 1959, and then in 1985, the bank again led the way with the launch of home banking. This was an early application of internet technology and gave the customers direct access to accounts via a television screen and telephone network. Today, the bank is dedicated to Scotland with a presence in all major towns and cities nationwide. It has 290 branches and a mobile banking service that connects Scotland's furthest flung communities. Bank of Scotland is the financial partner to over 2.8 million personal customers and 150,000 commercial customers. Great Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. Another brilliant segment and what a bank, what a story. Tom. So, Bank of Scotland, I wouldn't be sitting here today unless it was for Bank of Scotland. Um, I owe them and a certain individual a debt of gratitude. I had been a Royal Bank of Scotland customer because my dad had been it before and that was the way it, it went in these days. And then with the chance to buy Olympus Sport, and I went to Royal Bank and they said no. <laughs> and I had met the governor of the Bank of Scotland at a football match. And he said, oh, if you ever need anything, Tom. I said, no, no, I'm very happy. And then I was looking for his business card <laughs> to say, remember me. And um, so that was way back. So they took a chance on me. Um, a young man called Peter Cummings um, took a big chance on me. He did take my house as security, which I never told Marion, actually, Willie, so she never knew. But um, they backed me when others wouldn't, and I'm delighted to say that Peter Cummings is the chairman of West Coast Capital, the Hunter Foundation, and looks after my kids' trust to this day. So I love the Bank of Scotland. Great. Willie? Yeah, um, I can certainly endorse that. I've been uh, with the Bank of Scotland since the first day I started in business, over 30-odd years now. And uh, just to you know, concur with what Thomas said, um, I think uh, Peter Cummins in his time at the Bank of Scotland, along with Willie Watt at Three Eyes, is one of the greatest period for entrepreneurs, I would say, in, in the last four decades. During that time, they put the west of Scotland on, on the map. They, they tried to say yes more than they said no. And like Tom, I would say that... Um, we would not be the business that we are today. We've been banking with the bank. Um, you know, started off in a wee local branch, then we ended up in the city centre as the business grew. Ended up dealing when Peter became the head of the bank, which was fantastic. Uh, tell you a wee story about that, Tom, that you might not know. Right. Um, 
when uh, Peter was told he was going to become the boss of the Bank of Scotland, he had agreed a few weeks before that we'd come onto the board of City as a non-exec director. I didn't know that. Uh, and he phoned me up one evening. I'm sure he won't mind me telling it now. And he phoned me and says, look, I need to see you. It's kind of urgent. So it's like something wrong. He said, no, I'll meet you tomorrow half past seven. I met him in my <laughs> office. I'm, I'm, I remember it. He made him a piece of sausage and with a cup of tea. And he said, listen, he said... Um, just to let you know that uh, I've been offered the, the job, but you know, as, 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 as the MD of, of, of the Bank of Scotland, and I said that's fantastic. And he says, look, but the reason why I'm coming to tell you, only you, probably Tom knew at the time, and maybe Margaret Mary, his good wife, <laughs> uh, he said that. Um, but look, it's still okay. I'm, I'm still get the go ahead to come onto the board. And I said, you've got to be kidding. You're going to be busy. <laughs> I said, you can do more good for everybody in this city, in this country, if all your efforts are, um, you know taking in the new job so um, uh, I agree Bank of Scotland have been there for me they've helped us grow the business uh, we have I, I would say that the Bank of Scotland are the reason why we've never had to sell equity in the business you know since we had you know three eyes involved away back in the early stages so they've helped us fund our expansion across the, 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 the globe so nothing but the, the highest of praise for the Bank of Scotland how they've helped us Brilliant. Fantastic. So the Bank of Scotland's been great for both of you. In general terms, our banks, have they the mindset to help us recover the economy, to provide that money, to take the risks, to support? Yeah, well, I I think entrepreneurs can always moan about banks, but um, the bottom line is uh, banks provide debt, so they're risk-averse. And we want them to be risk averse. We don't want our banks taking huge risks. You know, the financial crisis um, proved that. And therefore, there are other forms of finance, um, venture capital, private equity, et cetera, et cetera, where it's more risky. But the people who put it in understand the risk. So we don't want our banks to be big risk takers. We want them to be there, to be solid, to be dependable and other forms of finance can take the risk. Willie? I think these great institutions go through phases and I think really, and I think Peter Cummings demonstrated that, it's all down to the individual at the time that's heading up that institution and his ideas of how you know that a bank should be run and there's no doubt there was nobody more entrepreneurial you know, than Peter at that time. There's been a lot of other good guys but Peter was a right go, you know, the thing that Chris said, risk, 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 but always, you know, there was always a parachute for the bank, you know, the bank never took any risks uh, and I think that, um, that for me, um, I, I, I don't think I've ever been with any bank for anything else um, other than the Bank of Scotland, so I really can't tell, and I would just say that my experience with them has been top class. Great. Great story. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to one of Scotland's leading entrepreneurs, Chris van der Kyle, CBE. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the board you can't afford, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Inspiring advice for Scottish business. Welcome back as we are joined by the brilliant entrepreneur Chris van der Kyle, the man behind gaming sensation Minecraft. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag gohunterandhockey. Chris, welcome to the show. Wonderful, Don. Lovely to be here. 
Well, you've had a remarkable journey and fantastic success story, but let's go right back to the start. Tell us how it all came about. I think from a pretty early age, Donald, I've, I realised I was unemployable. Like I tried a few jobs. <laughs> you know, I, I even worked for the great Ian Grabiner selling shoes on a Saturday in Chelsea Man in Dundee for a while. <laughs> that lasted about three months. Um, and I didn't realise that you weren't meant to kind of tell the people that you worked for what they were doing wrong and how they could do it better, or even worse than that, show them up um, in some way. So that led to a sort of succession of wee jobs uh, for me. But I'd also got the bug for technology really early on. I think it was about nine when my dad, who's a teacher, brought home the first Apple computer from school for the weekend, and I, I totally hooked from day one. Um, and when you were a kid growing up in the 80s, if you could program, everybody wanted you to write software for their business. Like There was no... Microsoft Office Suite or anything like that. So, you know, I, I, by the time I was 15 or 16, I was writing accountancy packages for small businesses and wow. doing all that kind of thing. Um, so, inadvertently, I learned how to run businesses by developing software for them. I, and that opened my eyes. Nobody in my family had ever been in business. I, I also was really fortunate to be part of a, the Young Enterprise program when I was at school. So, again, that kind of made me realise that the people that ran businesses, our our partners were that great Dundee institution, Willie Lowe's, uh, who ended up yeah. being known as Willie Tesco's in Dundee because uh, because they got bought by them. Um, but I met the marketing department and the senior sales directors at, at William Lowe, and I thought, these are just ordinary people. They're nice people. They're, you know, they're not these weird beasts that are business people. You know, they're, they're just like me and people I know. Um, so that kind of put the bug in me. And as a student, I went to university in Edinburgh, uh, and studied computer science. And as a student, I got an internship at uh, NCR. Again, great inward investment in Scotland, uh, post-war, part of that whole deal. Um, but they had the brains in Scotland. They had the software development. They had the innovation in R&D here. Um, and after a summer there, I kind of realised that technology, you know, as a, as a big and scaling industry, was going to be what I saw, where I saw my future. So I, in my second year, I convinced them to send me to Silicon Valley so at 19, I sort of landed for the first time in San Francisco, uh, you know, fresh off the plane, had a minder from NCR, and it, I'd sort of, I wouldn't say I'd over-exaggerated my plan to the, <laughs> the bosses at NCR, but, but I'd written them this thing where I said, I've found a customer who's going to use what was really innovative in the late 1980s, a database system called, uh, called SQL, SQL, which is what Oracle has, was based on. And Oracle was a pretty new company at that point. And I said, I need to go to Silicon Valley to meet Oracle because Oracle are going to be the core of your, your banking systems because that's what NCR did. They, they were the world leader in making uh, cash machines um, in Dundee. Um, and I went over there and said, this is the system that you need to use. And they said, no, you're wrong. Every bank in the world uses IBM, DB2. Nobody's going to touch these you know, upstarts from Silicon Valley. And I said, no, no, I found a customer in, in uh, Michigan uh, you know, who wants this, I submitted the wee request, you know, because it was all done by letter in, in the late 80s, no no international email really at that point. And they'd said, if you can give us this SQL database connection to Oracle, we would buy more machines from you. So I said, well, can I go out and see if I can make it work? And daft though they were, they, they sent me over there um, and I got off the plane spent a week in Silicon Valley and my mind was blown. Every coffee shop I went into was full of people like me talking about software, talking about technology. Um, but I had this double-edged thing that happened to me, which was, wow, this is nirvana. But at the same time, nobody I met was as smart as some of the people that were at university with me back in Scotland or other people I knew in Scotland. And if I'm not put too fine a point on it, 
I don't think creatively Silicon Valley is as amazing as people think it is. I think there's better, you know, creative uh, and entrepreneurial brains right here. And maybe I was daft or, or not, but I decided right there and then that I was going to do this back in Scotland. And that led me to set my first business up basically the day I left university. But you were young. It's incredible to go over there with such confidence to challenge the, the status quo, if you like, and tell them there's a better way of doing things. You know, I've known Willie and Tom a long time, and I think they'll both tell you that I, I don't lack confidence. <laughs> um, there's no lack of confidence, Donald. No. Um, you know, it goes back to, I had a great, you know, upbringing in Dundee, you know, where my parents absolutely instilled in me from really early on, like, whatever you want to do, you can do it. If you want to go and play basketball for Scotland, go and, go and do it. So I, I played, I did that at school and then realised even at six foot six, I was just a bit too small to have a, <laughs> a, full, a fully fledged pro career in basketball. Um, and then music, you know, still today, music is really, really important to me. And I was like, I don't know if I want to go to uni and do it. The bands are doing too well and my parents, just go and do it. Enjoy it. You know, see how far you get with it. Um, and then there was a point in there where I said, you know what, love music and it's always going to be part of my life. But technology is where, where I'm going to go. They're like, great. So every turn, I'm, and the other thing about me, I suppose, is I'm a Euro mongrel. Right? I've lived in Dundee all my life. I was born, uh, you know, born and brought up there. Had, you know, managed to escape to the bright lights of Edinburgh for a few years at university, but drawn back into that, uh, you know, to, to Dundee is the place I wanted to be. It's a great city. It's, I've been worked there for seven it's, years. It's amazing. But at the same time, you know, I had. You know, due to the Second World War, I had one Dutch grandfather and one Polish grandfather, and there was always that sense of looking outwards from from where we sat. You know, was, you know, as a kid, we were always in Holland in the summer. You know, packed in a wee car and over on the ferry and see the family there. So every you know every day I woke up, I was always thinking about things that were outside Scotland as well as inside, and that sort of led me to believe I could do it because you know everywhere I went, I met people. I thought, yeah, I I can do what they can do, or they'll talk to me. No. Nobody I've ever wanted to pick up the phone to, you know, hasn't, uh, you know, hasn't wanted to talk. I mean, sometimes Tom Willie don't return my calls for a few weeks, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but they do eventually talk to me, um, and that's been amazing as well. Chris, can I ask you, being six feet six and coming from Dundee, are you often compared to Henbrun? <laughs> wouldn't be the first time, uh, Willie. Wouldn't be the first time somebody said that. <laughs> so, so Chris, you, you and I have known each other a very long time. And a couple of things stick in my memory. The first one, because we're both passionate about making Scotland a great entrepreneurial society. And the first thing that stuck in my mind, and maybe you can talk to it, was just the happenstance of the Timex factory in Dundee and making, was it was it the ZX? Yeah. Was it? So, yeah. And, and just, just tell us a wee bit about how that happened to then spur a, sure. a great industry and a great in, personal interest from you. Sure, Look, Britain's always had this great culture of of hobby shed inventors you know, doing something, and you always get this really interesting dichotomy between big structured corporations that think they know how to find the future, and then folk in the sheds who actually know what the future's really like, and you know, and, and create out of nothing. Um, and Britain's always been pretty good at that. And none, nothing more so than what started to happen down in Cambridge um, in the in the late seventies, early eighties. And this is a really timely question because um, you know, unfortunately, Sir Clive Sinclair, who's right at the root of this, passed away. Uh, you know, just over a week ago. Um, and many of us in the games industry, we kind of all sort of got together and said, you know, without him, none of us would be sitting here today. Wow. Um, and if you actually go and look at the the testimonials uh, that were that were out on the internet, you know. 
Elon Musk, massive testimonial, were it not for Clive Sinclair. And actually, people, it's easy to overlook, uh, but Clive Sinclair is undoubtedly parallel to Elon. You know, I think wow. in terms of what Elon's doing today, Clive was trying to do, but with tuppence <laughs> right, and no availability of capital. And, and we mentioned that in yeah. the show, yeah, last it week. Did? Yeah. 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 Um, so what you got is, so you had Timex in Dundee. And Timex, again, there was this cluster of businesses in Dundee. And this talks to inward investment strategy. So if you look at what Dundee had after the war, you know, we had, uh, we had NCR, I've mentioned, that's still there today with a big, big R&D presence in Dundee. You had Levi Strauss. So at one point, million pairs of jeans a week wow. being made in Dundee. Um, you had a, a fridge company whose name I've forgotten because they've gone. You know, it's not a brand that exists anymore. Big American refrigerator company. But then, then Timex. So, so Timex is an inward investment. Obviously, yeah. it was watch assembly, mechanical watch assembly, um, and then mechanical watches, you know, today incredibly in fashion and worth an absolute <laughs> fortune. Back at that point in the 1970s, you know, the, the Swiss watch industry yeah. nearly, nearly died. So Timex were gubbed at that point. So what we're going to do Digital watches obviously is a thing, um, and then they were out looking for contracts. So they did some digital watch manufacture. Uh, involved, they had a bizarre thing called the Nimlo 3D camera, which was right. nothing to do with Clive Sinclair. But then Clive came up and asked them to manufacture the ZX81. 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 That, and if you look at the manufacturing history of Dundee, it's all about dexterity, right? You know, so jute, the jute industry was pretty much entirely populated by by female weavers. Uh, you know, because of dexterity. Same thing with Timex. It was an almost all-female workforce at that wow. time. So the ZX81 came, pretty successful. And then about, I think it was in 82, Clive launched the ZX Spectrum. Now, what you've got to understand is, over in the States, big corporation, you know, IBM hadn't quite woken up to PCs at this point. So the, the main competition there was the Commodore 64. Commodore, like, right. Amazing computer, brilliant, but properly American you could throw it out the window and it would bounce and be, you know, and work. It was chunky and it was pretty relatively expensive. We also had, and this is part of the story of computer games in Britain, an amazing entrepreneur called Herman Hauser, uh, who's part of a company called Acorn, who did a partnership with the BBC to create the BBC Model B, which is every school. Yeah. Uh, but again, it was quite an expensive beast, about the same as a Commodore 64. Clive thought completely differently. He thought, how cost-effective. Here's the price point I want to hit. How do I make a computer that's going to sell at £149 to the biggest market we can? And he cut corners. It was in some ways, it wasn't the best design. So the hobby market took to it like a duck to water. Now, you told me the story, and I just wonder, you know, we talk about sliding doors in our life, and you told me that you get your hands on a ZX at not the full retail price. Of, of course, Tom. So <laughs> so in Dundee, and this is perfectly legitimate, of course, <laughs> if there are any defects in manufacturing, these machines were either going to skip or they could be sold at a lower price. So you can imagine, <laughs> there, was the an, you can imagine there was an entrepreneurial flair on the work, yes. in the workforce at Timex. So if you were in Dundee, £149 for the rest of the world at retail. For us, it, the going rate was about a fiver and a packet of embassy. <laughs> so that was known in Dundee as the backdoor model. <laughs> I, I did, well, look, I, I had six of the things. Did right? you? I, wow. Yeah, yeah wow. you know, I took Sunday but, off. But, but, uh, but seriously, you know, the happenstance of that happened in Dundee, you'd, there and then getting access to it. I mean, yeah. Was it pivotal, do you think? Am 100%. Look, Dundee today has more game developers per head of population than anywhere on earth. Wow. Right? wow. That is down to one thing, which was at that point in the 1980s, 
total ubiquity and access. You know, talk about leveling up. You know, everyone had access to computing. Right. And it was also at a time where you couldn't really afford, the, the software wasn't even a thing. You know, there was people starting uh -huh. to put them in video rental stores and you could buy them on tapes. But most of us were getting magazines every week and typing the code in from the magazine to play the games. Right. And of course, you typed it in wrongly, you screwed it up, and inadvertently you were being taught how to program by just copying what other people were doing, then maybe improving it a wee bit. And then in Dundee, you know, suddenly things like computer clubs became a thing. So the schools all got into it. Right. And do you think the catalyst of that was access to Sir Clive Sinclair's ZX? 100%. Wow. And, and That's you, amazing. And if you look at the output in our school, you know, my year alone, like we did A-level computing because the hire hadn't even been invented at that point. Uh, so myself and my business partner, Paddy Burns, who I met on my first day at school, the pair of us <laughs> went on to do what we're doing today. Uh, a great guy called John White came down in sixth year from Whitfield, which is you know the, the snowy <laughs> north of Dundee. Um, he's one of the key uh, engineers at Rockstar North working wow. on Grand Theft Auto. And there's loads, loads beside him. I mean, obviously, a year or two ahead of me was a, a guy called Dave Jones, guy at my school called Gary Timmons, another guy called Mike Daly, and they were the first ones to show that professional gaming, uh, game development was a thing. They developed Lemmings and then Lemmings, right. developed Grand Theft Auto, the, f the, first, the first versions of it. So without them and without that whole thing, you know, it was, it was a real snowball. And the, So, I mean, I, I, I love that story, and there's a lesson there for governments trying to write policy to create what, what we all want in this show, which is a more entrepreneurial society. Um, the second thing you told me that stuck in my mind, and this you must have told me this 25 years ago, was that the games industry was going to become much bigger than the whole entertainment industry. Did you believe me? I did not believe you. I believe you now. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you know? Um, because I was in the middle of it. Because I was in the middle of it and I'd seen the trend. You know, we, we were the smallest entertainment industry. We didn't exist, frankly. And then suddenly we started to get bigger than the music industry. And because of the word games and because of the young demographic that, that started playing games in the first place, nobody really took us that seriously. A few smart people did, um, but then you could start to see it. But honestly, 10 years ago, I was sitting, not quite calling the top of the market, but since ah, I'm kind of struggling to see how we're going to really exponentially grow from here. I was a total idiot. I'm sitting 10 years <laughs> later going, we've just had the biggest 10 years. We're now bigger than every other segment combined in the in the world of entertainment. I mean, I mean, Grand, I Grand mean Theft just, just say that again, Chris. The games industry is bigger by revenue than every other segment of the entertainment so industry music, combined. music, movies, television, theatre, wow. the, whole, the, whole, the whole shooting match. Oh, that's wow. incredible. So, that's, it's unbelievable. If you go and look, you know the the Bond franchise, amazing. It's out, and I can't wait to see it. And it's going to be, you know, by all accounts, incredible, and it's brilliant. It's a pimple on the side of Grand Theft Auto. Really? You know, yeah. <laughs> the biggest movie releases of all time don't come close to it. And guess what? Grand Theft Auto, created in Scotland, and the core studio, Rockstar North, is in gobbing distance of the Parliament in Holyrood. They is took that, over the Scotsman's no Scotsman building. Yes. Yeah, yeah they took right. over the Scotsman's headquarters. They might outgrow it now. Uh, so, you know. so, Chris, let me ask you a question. Will there be guys sitting in the gaming industry in Silicon Valley today knowing Dundee is on the map? 100%. Yeah? Yeah. 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 The, there's a great Silicon Valley company called Unity that out of nowhere in the past few years listed and is now, I think, 40 billion market cap. Bought a company in Dundee last year. The divisional VP that looks after all that is a good friend of ours and he wants to come over as soon as the world's open and say, how can we make Dundee 
this a major centre for us. We've bought this great company, we love it. We now want to know what to do next. And there's still some of the companies still independent, still Scottish-based owned companies. Absolutely, right, yeah. right in the middle of that is for our very own 4G Studios. Yeah, and and Chris, Donald will like this. So, um, the name of your company 4G because Dundee was known for jam, journalism, and jute, and now. The fourth J is obviously joysticks. Yes. So Dundee is not the city of the three J's, it's the city of the four, four J's. Four J's. So there you go, Donald. I thought you would like that. Indeed. So so tell me, because I, I know you've been fundamental in getting the university, the University of Aberdeen. Yep. Was was it the first in the world? First in the world to do a computer games uh, master's degree and then, and then a bachelor's degree, yep. Brilliant. And so when you see a cluster like this coming up, what's the lessons for the rest of Scotland, do you think? So the big le- big lesson, which is a difficult lesson for me to learn, as you guys know, is patience. <laughs> you know, um, you know, this, this what are you is, talking about? <laughs> this is an overnight success. That the seeds of it were sown in in the early eighties. Um, it started to the first flower blossomed with lemmings really in nineteen ninety one. Uh, we came along a couple of years after that and sat down and said, if we're going to grow a, an industry, we need input. We need talent. It's the only thing we need. That was the Aberté conversation. That probably took until 2000 to mature. And, and in that 10-year period, we all just had to scrabble for talent, you know, fight each other on the, in the pubs you know, for it and do your best together with the help of, brilliant help at the time of Scottish Enterprise right. in Good. promoting the sector. You know, Scottish Enterprise were absolutely fundamental to the world believing that Scotland was a brilliant place to make games. Well, that's great um, to hear. You know, yeah. we, and. They asked us, they came to us in about 96, I think, 90, yeah, about 1996 and said, what can we do to help? And we said, stay out of the way of what we're trying to do in business, but help us look like world-class world at every major trade so the show. Marketing. And, and, they, and they did it brilliantly. Great. Okay. So that decade happened. And then this, the, the 2000 to 2010 decade, there was a bit of turbulence, you know, that whole thing of people saying to me, well, business, you, you know, one of, one of our, our first business, Viz, you know, ran into big problems, had huge success, and then the very next year, you know, ran into big structural problems. Uh, Dave Jones's businesses, he went through a couple. He famously raised a hundred million for a business called Real Time Worlds, that uh, you know from American VC that went bust in that decade. And everybody's saying, "Well, this is it. You've had your chance, Dundee." And we're all saying, "No, no, you don't understand. This is part of an amazing growing sector. We've got the talent. We just got to keep believing in it." And the past decade, 2010 to 2020. We've demonstrated it in spades. The scale's now started to come. The next decade, we really need to back it because that's where huge economic benefit will come. You know, so it's it really is that sort of 30-year journey if you're truly going to create an indigenous sector. And it's really, really important in that that there's great indigenous businesses returning money to shareholders in Scotland as well as money going back to New York. all again, Chris, and you're you're the epitome of that. If it's going to be the future growth and prosperity, are young people equipped with the skills and knowledge that will help them and Scotland thrive in the jobs and sectors like gaming? So, as as you you might know, I, I, I... put my head fully in the noose recently and said I would go on to uh, an advisory board for the Scottish government to look at uh, you know the economic strategy for the next 10 years. Uh, and I think the Cabinet Secretary for Finance, Kate Forbes, uh, has done a fantastic job of putting a real bunch of challenging individuals uh, you know in a room together. Um, and 
just as an aside, I need to point out at this stage, after all the appointments were made and, and the, the curtain was pulled back on who was going to be sitting around the table, I looked at the, this group of people and went, wow, it's pretty impressive. I said, but there's the old school ties clearly strong in Scotland, eh? Three of them went to St Saviour's High School in Dundee. Oh. Um, you know, and... You know, if you don't know St Saviour's High School, uh, you know, which is actually, it, it was demolished a few years ago and they're going to rebuild a new 21st century school campus um, on, on the site. Um, I always kind of refer to it with affection as being located in Dundee's Bermuda Triangle. You know, equidistant <laughs> from, from, uh, from Whitfield, Douglas, uh, which is always, unfortunately, right at the top of the League of Shame in terms of deprivation indices, and the most inaptly named uh, housing scheme in Scotland, Happy Hillock. Um, <laughs> Happy Hillock? Happy Hillock. Wow. Uh, so it's a really tough part of town, and amazing, amazing talent has come out of that. So, you know, a chair of economics, of global economics at Brown University in, uh, in Rhode Island is a chap called uh, Professor Mark Blythe, who was two years above me at school, played in bands with me, was a professional musician until he was 23 and decided this isn't going to be for me and went to University of Strathclyde and then on to uh, New York, then John Hopkins and now sitting there. He's amazing. He He's on it. Um, and John Alexander, the youngest ever civic leader, uh, elected civic leader in Scotland, uh, the, the, uh, the leader of Dundee City Council, an amazing talent, still in his early 30s. He... He, he went to St. Saviour's as well. So I was like, yep, it's not eating in Scotland, it's, uh, it's St. Saviour's. So after the shock of that and going, okay, they, they're going to be good, uh, you've also got people in the room uh, like Dame Sharon White, the chair of John Lewis, who's you know, a storied career in, in the civil service and now on to uh, on business. You know, amazing. Uh, Nick McPherson, who was the permanent secretary to the Treasury uh, for many years and a real a real world-class brain is now, now in, the, in the Lords. When you look at that group, that group does not have strong political affiliation. That group has got strong opinion on on where the world goes and what we need to do. So real hats off for, for uh, Kate Forbes for bringing that group together. And I think she's getting a resounding message, which is, it's all about talent, Kate. If we do not attract the best talent to Scotland right now, you know, whether we've got control of immigration policy or not, think about how we do it. If we do not then think about the 30-year, you know, 10 years, great, but the 30-year horizon of how we turn our education system from strong decline and chaos, in a, you know, in a word in certain areas, to world-class delivery in a radical and coherent way, it ain't going to happen. So how are we going to take action? And what is the government's place in that? And I certainly believe, back to our previous point about Scottish Enterprise really supporting the games industry, Communications and marketing is right at the top of the agenda and should be right at the top of the government agenda. And the public have a have a real challenge with this. You know, the media love to pull up a consultancy bill and go, my God, why are we paying a hundred grand to build the strategy or redo the logos for this? You know, creating the Irish story. You know, I bet if you go and dig into how much money Ireland has spent since the 1980s on communicating their message on promoting their country outside their country uh, you know on rebranding and, and messaging and lobbying and you know it'll be utterly enormous we should be doing that and doing it in spades you know no matter what the future is for Scotland uh, politically we as Scots need to embrace how do we build the strongest economy we possibly can and it starts from like we did in the games industry 
believing in ourselves and believing and putting a foot forward and saying we're not the best wee country in the world and we're not apologising for, for anything we're here because we're world class in the areas that we want to be world class in Chris I think on that but we have to address the elephant in the room the, yep. the message that Ireland got out to the world was here's a tax band that you can live with <laughs> that was a guess but a marketing that they'd done to attract all of these big companies to America well, from America th- what I would say to you there Willie is that was absolutely the right policy yeah. for the, for the place and time, yeah. right? You know, the EU was becoming, you know, was clearly an open market. That the, and let's focus on the US. That the US wanted to take the right foothold in. So if you're an English, you know, they want an English speaking country. And what else are you going to give us, country? Ireland played a blinder on that. That that ship slightly sailed. I don't think I don't think Scotland's strategy should be about low tax, uh, you know, the you know or low corporation tax. I think it should be about mega business friendly that this is the environment where if you come in you will have arms wrapped around you from the person that picks you up in a taxi at the airport to the person you meet in government to the banks to everybody this needs to be our culture is all about encouraging business and that's not where we've been for the past decade you know the business community definitely feels uh, a bit unloved uh, you know on one hand and also the easy thing to put in the crosshairs to for blame for something that's nothing to do with business I uh, Ultimately, I'm not the best person qualified to come up with, with, with what the right political policy is to do it. But what I'm saying to you is, brand Scotland, it's the single most important thing we can do with substance behind it. So not brand Scotland for shortbread and great holidays. That's an ancillary opportunity. Brand Scotland for the greatest commit. You know, Tom and I know an amazing uh, large, large cap American CEO. You know, really, really friendly, who runs a massive, massive company in America that everybody know. He he called me up recently and said, I've got an amazing idea for our business and it needs about 600 to 1,000 people with the right financial uh, technology and service brains. Do you think you could do it in Scotland? My answer, of course, was absolutely. Um, but then I've kind of looked behind me and gone, right, who's there that I can pass this ball to? to deliver in a credible way that's not going to make me look daft. And the answer is no, there's not really anybody that can do that right now. We need our development agencies to be fit for purpose, not to race to the bottom, not to offer Scottish people as, you know, low price, uh, you know, low price, high volume talent. It's got to be the best, the you know, the greatest place to do business. So, but I think that's a really good point and I think you're a, a really good example Um Obviously, as an ex-chair of Scottish Enterprise Glasgow, I think one of the things that really set you know the Scottish Enterprise back is when they done away with the regional bodies. You know, when they took all the teeth away, and I think that that people like you who fought and clawed and you know done everything you could to make sure that Dundee was still relevant, that must have been tougher and tougher when they done away with a local economic development company. So I think that if you know if we know we've been we've been involved in these think tanks you know for twenty five years right and it's great that Kate has put all these people together. The big point is is people going to listen and then they're going to change. And I think if there's one thing one message at all that I think would be great and would help put the country, especially at the moment is 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 coming through COVID. I definitely think it'd be a good idea to revisit. You know and I know that taking SC Central was all about control. Right now, now that the, the Scottish Nationals have got control of the country, then there's no problem to go back and set up regional economic development companies. So I, th- I think what's been interesting, I think I think it's a it's an omni shambles right yeah. right now. Yeah. The whole economic development landscape in Scotland and tinkering with it will get us nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on the back of this strategy, I think there is an opportunity. Not my job 
in this context to to be the solutions provider, but I've got an opinion which I'll share with you. Mm-hmm. I, I think they've just made a great appointment. Adrian Gillespie has just come in as the chief executive of Scottish Enterprise. Um, left Scottish Enterprise to go and work with Jim McDonald at University of Strathclyde. And he's come back, I think, totally reinvigorated, ready. And he's a guy who absolutely understands the macro opportunity, the, the big opportunity for Scotland and wants to be part of the solution. What we can't do is bring talent like that in and then slap giant handcuffs on them, have some quasi-bizarre board that Scottish Enterprise reports to alongside the newly created South of Scotland Enterprise thing, which as far as I can see was a political gift to somebody. Um, I think HIE, I totally get the, um, you know, I completely understand the nature, the differential of rural and highland economies, but we should all be together because they fight like cats in a bag as well at times, uh, you know, between HIE and it. We need one strategy, one organisation, and it needs to be laser-focused. Back in the 1990s, uh, Crawford Beveridge or Robert Crawford, uh, always they were the two chief execs, and because they shared Crawford as a surname and a Christian name, I can I can never remember who did what. Um, but one of them, one of the Crawfords, uh, he brought over his equivalent from uh, Israel. And Israel, if you look at the demographics of it population-wise, about the same size as Scotland. And lo and behold, the Economic Development Agency that this guy ran had about the same budget as SE did at the time. Whilst SE had a mandate to build bridges, provide training for everybody, uh, God knows what else, infrastructure projects, you know, death by a thousand cuts, you're now responsible for this too now, Mr SE. Over in Israel, they were basically told, apply all of that money to high technology, high growth business and nothing else. We don't want to know about anything else. And it was like an epiphany for me. It's like, that's... that. People say, oh, it's because Israel spent so much on defence. It's because of their political nature. That's why Israel has the second biggest number of companies floating on the NASDAQ after after the US. Um, it's all because of that. It's not. It's actually de- decisive focus and, de- you know, and making those tough decisions. Maybe that does come from a bit of their military background and the culture that's there. I can, I can see that. I'm not for a second trying to <laughs> think that Scotland should go in any way in that direction. But Scotland becoming decisive, taking risk. Risk management is all about taking the maximum risk you can without screwing things fundamentally. We approach risk management as let's obliterate any risk whatsoever so nobody can get blamed for anything. That's that's us knackered if, that's, if, if we do that. We've got to up our appetite for risk. And I think it's unfair to just turn that on the politicians. The whole of Scotland needs to start saying that's what our culture's about. You know, it goes back to the the Johnny Walker stories, you know, the great entrepreneurs that came out of Scotland you know, during the Victorian era, they took enormous risk every single day they got up. Without the benefit of the communications technology and data that we've got, we can be really, really clever and take these risks and see success for Scotland. I, I think, Chris, to be fair, you're a great example of that you have not let politics or you have not let the system get in the way. The people in Dundee, when you thought nothing was happening, you grasped it yourselves. So a group of local people, like-minded, want to make things happen for, for Dundee. You know, the v is a great example of that. So And I think the regeneration, so it's great. And, and you've talked about it. The building blocks you need is a young go-ahead leader of a council, right, which you've, you've already said you've got, yep. and then a group of uh, local business people who believe in the city, want the best for the city, not just for themselves, the way that, you know, that Tom does down here. So I, I think a lot of credit to you 
you and the team up there, the passion that you... I don't know where Dundee would be if it wasn't for people like you and people around about you that have actually made sure that you didn't get forgot about and Dundee was going to be remembered and on the map. So I think that watching what you've been doing over the past 15 years, we've not even touched on the things that you do, you know, with uh, the Enterprise Scotland. I'm sure Tom will want to talk about that now. But I think that that is a, you and the people there are an absolute great example about what you can do locally. Don't sit back and say regulation won't let us do this or we don't have the money to do it. You guys have rolled your sleeves up and, and put Dundee back on the map. Yeah, well but, said, Willie. Uh, I mean, great entrepreneurs like you, Chris, you don't wait for permission from government. You don't sit and go, well, if only the government. And, you know, if MD comes into my office and says, well, you know, I could do this if only the government, if only the council, if only, and I would say, thanks very much, cheerio. Because entrepreneurs just, they proceed until apprehended, and you're a great example of that. Um, I think the new head of Scottish Enterprise has got a chance. Um, I The first document I sent them was the IDA, the Irish Development Agency's um, marketing splurge. We're thinking the same thing. And the one thing that government could do was stop trying to control it. Because, you know, the thing you said there which is I'm really encouraged by is Kate Forbes is listening. So she's listening to people who know what they're talking about. The next part of the journey is the difficult part, is what she does with that knowledge that she's gleaned. And I'm optimistic. I've got to be, and I would really encourage you not to give up on it. Um, I know you're, you're not a, a quitter because we need to listen to people like you and then the politicians need to understand, right, sometimes the best thing they can do is get out the way. Yeah. And it takes an enlightened politician to do that. Now, John Swinney did it with Scottish Edge. And we're hopefully going to encourage that behaviour of a politicians getting out the way. Yeah, I think it's a great point. If, if Kate believes in the leadership of SE, the best thing the government can do is get out of the way. As long as they understand their remit, they understand their budgets, I think that putting the, the, the board that Kate has put together actually is the type of board that you actually need the SE, right? And and hopefully maybe that one may follow the other. But uh, it's promising, very promising. Um, apart from the fact, I hope you've not been with her this week, finding out that you know she's did COVID this week. So no, yeah. <laughs> o- only on Zoom, only on Zoom, Willie. All right, that's fine. Well, we wish fine. her well. No, we 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 are we are encouraged as well by you know loads of the initiatives and the things that Kate has had to say, and I believe that hopefully we're we're going to get her on the the show in the not too distant future. Can you leave it a wee while, Willie? I don't want to get <laughs> no no more COVID. Chris, I'd like to just keep chatting. I'm sure we'll get you back. I think we need part two, don't we? We do definitely need part two. It's it's been a fascinating story. Lots of key lessons to take away from that. But unfortunately for you, we've come to that part of the show where there's the ten quickfire questions, I'm afraid. I'm looking forward to this, Donald. Okay, here we go. You probably know the answers. (laughs) Yeah. How would your family and friends describe you, Chris? Happy, enthusiastic, optimistic and a total nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Who do you most admire and why? People in this room notwithstanding, uh, you know, it probably has to be Elon Musk. Uh, You know, there's many flaws in Elon Musk's character. I I wouldn't want to be Elon Musk, but I think his approach to risk, uh, his ability to envision what other people think is impossible, uh, you've you've got to admire that. Brilliant. Best book you've read and what are you currently reading? 
So there's that thing of who's your favourite child uh, type question <laughs> with, with books for me. Um, I, I love business biography. And what I've loved doing over the past year or two is going back at looking at periods of time in business. So there's a magic book by a guy called Ron Chernow uh, called Titan, which is the story of John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. And that's a, you know, that's a belter if you want to know and understand the psyche. And you can immediately apply it to today and see how this is all going to play out. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, and re- reading at the moment, uh, on, on a business sense, I'm reading Working Backwards, which is two senior Amazon execs, now no longer with the business, lifting the lid on how Amazon has become Amazon and how it works. And the clues in the title, they work backwards from the vision of where they think they're going to be. That's that's a good one. Brilliant. Favourite restaurant in Scotland and meal of choice? So it's got to be uh, Dundee's Giddy Grill, right? Run by (laughs) the most amazing Nigerian entrepreneurial family, uh, husband and wife, who are world-class. It is, ask anybody in Dundee, it's like number one trip advisor, number one everything. It's his vision for how he's going to kick the living crap out of Nando's and I think he's going to do it. <laughs> so restaurant one is nothing like Nando's. It's the best night out in Dundee um, and I, I look forward to see what he does next. Favourite TV programme or series and what are you currently watching? Ah, listen, I'm going to I'm going to go. The Dundee connections are all in here. It's got to be Succession. 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 Um, yeah. So, so Brian, Brian Cox and my dad were in the same class at school oh. and I, the last time I saw Brian, um, I said, Brian, somebody sent me an old flyer from a play in 1962 I didn't even know my dad was in it at St Michael's Junior Secondary in Dundee and there's Brian Cox and Tony Vanderkill on the same bill and he looked at me and he actually gave me the closing speech from the play from 1960 (laughs) without missing a beat I mean that guy (laughs) finally getting his just desserts he's you know one of the greatest actors of our lifetimes we've talked about Bond earlier on the show but what's your the last film that you watched and your all time favourite or film or series I Within within movies, I mean, obviously, I, I grew up at a time where Spielberg and Lucas, you know, was right at the core of my uh, of my of my young years. So, you know, I've got to pick. If I'm going to pick anything, I'm going to pick uh, Star Wars: Empire Strikes Back. Um, you know, as just utterly brilliant. Um, and I actually got to meet the writer. Those people were just mind blowing cinema entrepreneurs and and redefined the you know redefined culture as we see it today. So that's probably my, my favourite. You're a musician, playing bands. Are still still playing bands? I do, you know, unfortunately, time doesn't give me the, you know the 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 luxury of getting getting to play in, in proper bands anymore. But from time to time, I get drafted in to do the odd thing, and I and I still love it. I've still got my studio at home. I play as much as I can. We're actually refurbishing a bit of the house, so my piano is actually literally encased <laughs> um, at the moment. I can't get to it, so I'm desperate for that. But my biggest treat is my Wurlitzer. A stage electric piano has currently been refurbished by the wonderful Niall, the uh, Deacon Blues uh, head of crew, um, and he's hopefully going to deliver it back to me quite soon because that's a, a precious beast. So it leads me into what song do you love to dance to? <laughs> um, I'm going to actually, again, I'm just going to shout out for Dundee all day today. It's got to be Mary's Prayer by Danny Wilson, oh, uh, one of the greatest pop songs ever written. If you were in power, can change one thing, what would it be? To make taking risk a mandated part of everybody's job. Anybody that didn't take risk and could show that they're taking risk every week, get them out the door. <laughs> wow. <laughs> if you weren't a successful business person, what would you have been? Probably a session keyboard player, quietly hiding at the back of the room, 
uh, you know, playing you away quietly in hiding never. in the back of the room. Six feet six, What countries have you most enjoyed traveling to for business or leisure? I love the United States of America. I mean, you know, traveled, been very fortunate to travel to many, many places, and there's loads of places. I love everywhere for specific reasons. The USA, you'll find everything there. You'll find every possible view and culture. You know, it's not one homogenous thing. The USA, anybody thinks it is, is mad. Um, and I keep uncovering amazing nuggets of brilliance and also amazing moments of madness, probably in the same day. Uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd say I'd say the US. Thanks, Chris. It's been a fascinating discussion, and we certainly need to have you back. Now, from gaming to games, coming up the Go Radio Football Show with Paul Cooney and guests Davy Proven and Craig Moore. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.